Hello Podworld, welcome to episode 2 of the Silver Hedgehog Hogcast. It's a podcast that complements the hog blog over at thesilverhedgehog.com. Now, in episode 1, I mentioned that podcasts vary from reviews of films and days out, through to interviews with anybody that won't run away from the microphone when I point it at them. And, surprisingly, after listening to episode 1, my guest this episode still agreed to venture onto the Hogcast. So I must be doing something right. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the former chairman of Litchfield Waterworks Trust, David Moore. And in this interview, we talk about Sandfield's pumping station, how it saved Britain from the cholera epidemic, and how David is now saving the legacy of that building. It's the first time I've interviewed somebody, the first time I've used Adobe Audition, and the first time I've used something called a Zoom microphone. But hopefully the sound quality is good enough and that you enjoy listening to the, uh, the interview as much as I enjoyed making it. Here's David. Good morning, David. Good morning, Gary. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to come onto the podcast. You are my first guest. And uh, this is the first interview I am I'm doing. And I keep wanting to look into the microphone. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> um, so you're here, obviously, to talk about the Litchfield's Waterworks Trust and Sandfield Pumping Station. Um, yeah. And anything else that you'd like to talk and chat about this morning. Um, so I thought we'd start off with a little bit of history of the station. Okay. And for those listeners that have never seen or heard of Sandfield's Pumping Station... Could you describe it and describe the building to us? Because it's absolutely a phenomenal looking building. Okay. Um, so, Sandfield's pumping station is basically a redundant, disused Victorian waterworks. Um, it was built in the style of um, Romanesque. So, it's this sort of lovely dark blue bricks with polychromatic tiles and sort of lovely arches above the windows. Attached to it is a very brutalist 1960s extension right. that actually replaced part of the original building. Um, it sits in its own ground just off Chesterfield Road um, on a little housing estate and it's right adjacent to the um, Litchfield to Warsaw South Staffordshire Railway. The building was originally built in 1853. Right. And it was built as a response to a pandemic. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so apt timing then. So, so, so the timing's absolutely perfect, yeah. So um, 1831, there were reports in the newspapers of a strange new pandemic coming across the country from, from Asia. And there didn't seem to be a known cause or a known cure. People were dying, you know, in quite mysterious circumstances. The bodies would actually turn blue. Mm. People would be fine one minute, and then within the space of an hour, they would become violently ill, and they'd be passing diarrhoea, they'd be vomiting. Um, A lot of the victims, about 20% of them, would die within about four hours of contracting the disease. Wow. And the body would actually turn blue. So it's all, it was almost like some sort of alien invasion. Good you know? grief. Um, the news of the pandemic spread quick and, as usual, it caused panic. It caused panic buying. Mm-hmm. Don't know if everybody bought all the toilet rolls up, but some people <laughs> were panicking. Yeah. Um, you know, and also a lot of blame and conspiracy theories were 
were going around at the time. Um, some people thought the doctors were killing patients because of human dissection. You know, right. So, so and the newspapers were fueling those stories. Because I suppose that was apt at the time as well, wasn't yeah. it? You know, in mm. terms of the medical advances that were being carried out yeah. in the in kind of eighteen hundreds. Yeah. The cholera eventually swept into Britain. It arrived both in London and Newcastle, more or less at the same time, in about 1831. Um, when it swept into Newcastle, it was um, witnessed by a very young apprentice doctor. I think he was about 15 years old at the time. And he was trying to himself charge with treating patients. This young doctor was called John Snow. Oh. Um, he was a young prodigy from York. He, he came from really sort of humble parentage, you know. His, his father was a cobbly-eyed labourer. And somehow his mother managed to get out of a bit of money and sent him to school. Uh, and he just excelled and ended up in medical school very, very quickly. So he witnessed this pandemic in, in Newcastle and Sunderland. He tried to treat people... Um, you know, by trying to rehydrate people, you know, they were losing water rapidly. Right. And, but whatever he did, it, it didn't make a difference. But Snow, he was a very interesting apprentice, apprentice because he, he, he was constantly observing all the symptoms, all the happenings. And he wasn't accepting the current theory that disease was spread through bad air or miasma. Right. Snow didn't accept that. Um, because he was treating miners who weren't really sort of subject to air change, you know, they were down in the mines all day long. But what Snow did notice was that the miners were working in absolute squalor. Okay. And so Snow started to believe that maybe the disease was being passed from person to person, but not through the air. Um, the pandemic itself swept across Britain in 1832. And, it, you know, by 1832, it was in the black country. Yeah. And some of the smaller villages like uh, like Bilston, Tipton, places like that, they lost thousands of people in the space of six weeks. Good grief. So by about the 4th of August, the disease arrived in the black country. And by the, you know, about the 15th of September, there were probably about 2,500 people dead. And certainly in Bilston, 740-odd people died within six weeks. That's a, it's a shocking amount, isn't it? Yeah. You know, uh, and you can imagine the conditions, because first of all, cholera is is what we call a filth disease. Right. So in other words, you just get diarrhoea and you... Oh, right, OK. ...pass yeah. between three and five gallons of diarrhoea in a day. So dehydration kicks so, in. So, so dehydration immediately. It alters your body chemistry. So the, the cholera bacteria basically alters your body chemistry. Um, so people were just dying in absolute squalor, you know, and they were dying in pain. There was very little to do in the way of treatments. Um, some of the same... Members of the same families were dying in the same day. In fact, the very first case in Bilston, um, this chap's wife became ill. So he went to fetch the mother-in-law to help look after her. By the time he got back to the house, she was dead. Oh, good grace. So fast. That fast. And then suddenly two more children died in the same household. Um, people were frightened of the bodies, you know, because they just did not know what the source of the contagion was. Yeah. You know. And so people were scared of the bodies. They didn't want to touch the bodies. The the graveyards was overwhelmed. Um, there were certain rules about you can't not be buried without a coffin, but they'd use all the coffins up, you know, within a few days, you know. So, so bodies were virtually sort of piling up. And this was in the middle of the summer. So you can imagine 
No refrigeration. There's no embalming. The, the smell must have been horrendous. And yeah. The insects. Yeah, and insects and God knows what. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So it must have been hell on earth for the people, you know, Bilston and the Black Country itself. And of course, they didn't know what was killing them. And I think that's the sort of sad part of it. Yeah. And eventually people were bedded in mass graves, you know, just mass unmarked graves. Um, these epidemics re reoccurred on a regular basis, you know, there was the 1832, the 1846, the 1852, the 1858, the, the epidemics continued to Could, you know, Real recent history as well, really. That's right, I yeah. mean, you're talking about four generations. Yeah, yeah that's all. That's right. So the station was built as a direct impact of the cholera epidemics. That's, that's correct. Yeah. So what's inside the station when you go into it? So eventually the source of the contagion was identified as drinking water. Okay. So the disease was communicated through water. Um, now, the, a lot of the medical professions stuck with their theories on miasma, that the contagion was spread through smelly air. And, and if you think about it, it sounds daft now with our knowledge. But at the time, if something stunk awful and made you feel ill, then you could understand why they thought it, there was a you know, contagion. And this would be at the height of the Industrial Revolution as well, wouldn't it? So right, yeah, yeah. it would be thick of smog and all sorts of pollutants. Absolutely. And you know. It would be smelling of egg, yeah, presumably, yeah. with and, sulphur. And that's exactly what you've got. You see, you've got this huge urbanisation where people are piling into the black country where there was no real infrastructure. There was meagre supplies of water anyway. Um, you know, so you could sort of see why it was rife for a pandemic. Um, it really was eventually John Snow. By, by the 1840s, 50s, he'd moved to London and he was practising. And he witnessed another cholera epidemic in Soho. And so he started to sort of pull back some of his memories from up in Newcastle. And he, he, he went round Soho with the Reverend Whitehead and they started interviewing people. They start, he started taking statistical measurements and he firmly believes, he proved theoretically that the cause of the Soho outbreak was this one, one particular water pump in, in Broad Street. And actually the, the pump, or a replica of the pump, is still there. Oh, wow. Um, the medical establishment actually poo-pooed the idea you know, um, and for, for two means possibly, which is one, you know, they like their miasma third, you know, they like being proved wrong. And also, there's always, you know, financial interests at stake as well. So a lot of snow studies were initially poo-pooed. It was really hard. But there was an underlying sort of group of people saying, we actually believe what snow is saying. And one of those people was a chap called John McLean. Okay. So John McLean was an engineer. Um, he was born in Ireland in Belfast. Apparently he was some sort of child prodigy. <laughs> um, you know, when he was sort of 10 years old, his father used to take him to the fair, the fun fair, and stand him up on stage. And people would ask him incredibly complex calculations, you know, and he could just do it off the top of his head. Oh, that's amazing. So it's like a genius level he, intellect. He was, he was a genius as a lad, you see. Anyway, John McLean, um, he, he became a civil engineer. He worked on the Suez Canal. He worked on designing a lot of London docks. He built the Sastas Railway, which is just outside here. Okay. And he also owned the Canachas Collieries. He became quite wealthy. I would say with John McLean that he was an engineer on par with Brunel. In fact, we believe by the evidence that two of them were actually good pals. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, except, you know, sort of Brunel was quite a showman, uh, 
McLean was quite an introvert. Okay. He did become um, an MP for a while, but he just didn't like all this public speaking. He was quite a sort of introvert, he was. Um, however, McLean realised himself, you know, or believed the, 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 the water theory. And so he raised money with a group of other people in Litchfield to actually build a waterworks in Litchfield right. to get water to the Black Country. So the problem he got in the Black Country is it was already short of water. What water there was already well polluted. Um, you know, the industry itself was polluting water. The industry was using lots of water. You need probably six tons of water to produce a ton of steel. Mm. People, you know, it was over-urbanised. People were just drinking water from everywhere. So it's got a real shortage. And the other thing was, is the black country is about 360 feet higher. So you just can't get water to it. it it's an impossible task. So, so McLean knew the problem was with water. Now, you know, you could take a sort of bucket of water out of the black country, but that just wouldn't work. You needed water in vast quantities. Yeah. Litchfield had got a really adequate supply of water. It's always had a really good supply of water because Litchfield lies quite low in the Trent Valley. Um, it's, a, it's had a water supply called the Conduits Lands Trust. Right. And that bought water in from Aldershore and it bought it through a pipe right into the cathedral close. <laughs> and then the water split out into these conduit heads where the local population can collect their own water. So it literally had always got its own water supply. But it's actually got quite a sort of surplus water supply of, of clean water in terms of the Lemonsey Brook and the Trunkfield Brook, you see. Yeah. So the Lemonsey Brook and Trunkfield Brook, they, they flow into Minster Pool. Now, Mr. Paul was actually probably pretty squalid at the time, you know, because the cathedral was chucking all of its slops and yeah. latrines into the <laughs> cathedral pool. The water then flowed through Mr. Paul into Stowpool, which was a small mill pond. Right, okay. So, what McLean did, he says, well, we've got this clean water. The, the challenge is actually moving that amount of clean water, you know, 360 feet higher, uh, several million gallons a day. So, what McLean did is he knew that you needed to build a waterworks. So he modified Minster and Stowe Pools. He, he dug out Stowe Pool, uh, Minster Pool, um, made it deeper. Apparently they recovered thousands of cannibals from the Civil War as they were doing it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then Stowe Pool he enlarged by building a dam at the far end and increasing the depth of the water by about 15 feet. And that increased right. Stowe Pool to about three times its size. So that accounts for why Stowe Pool is so big now. And also why you can't see St. Chad's Church anymore because it's hidden below the dam, you oh, see. Yeah. Right? So, so, so they raised the water level of both pools and then they built a tunnel. Now, originally, McLean wanted the waterworks to actually be at the location where Litchfield Station is now. Yes, the train However, station. The train station, yeah. However, um, the local people said, as well, if you build the waterworks there and bring the tunnel through the town centre, that tunnel has the potential to drain all of our water away with it. So you end up sucking all our water away and sort of giving it to the back country. <laughs> so what McLean did then is he sort of bypassed the town by building the pumping station here in Chesterfield Road and he sort of looped the tunnel all the way around, so around the top of the gasworks and then down to Chesterfield Road. Okay. And the tunnel is about 80 feet deep. So just, just built with men, I suppose? Yeah, that's right. It was all hand dug. Uh, it's about three quarters of a mile long. 
so much to write in day and it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So it's you, still still available to go and still discover? Or? You, you can't really sort of visit it because it's, it's, since the slot pumping it's tended to fill up your sleep. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But there are a couple of sort of open shafts that you can still see. Uh, and it arrives at Sandfields about 80 feet deep. Now the trick was then, of course, you've got to sort of shift all this water to the back country. So what McLean did is he, he bought some three beam engines from James Watson Co in, in Birmingham. Right. Um, it sounds like those beam engines, or the, some, some of the parts of those beam engines, was probably surplus to one of Brunel's um, endeavours, which is Brunel tried to build this atmospheric railway, which turned out to be a sort of monumental disaster. Right. And I don't think really that was Brunel's fault entirely. I mean, I think Brunel could have solved the problems, but the, the shareholders got jittery. Right, and pulled the plug on it, you know. So I feel a bit sorry for Brunel because he lost about twenty grand of his own money, which is probably equivalent, you know, nearly twenty million pound in today's. Yeah, it's a huge amount, really. Yeah, it was a huge amount Brunel lost, you know, and and, and I think he probably could have overcome the technical problems. And the idea was right, but not right if you know what I mean, you know. Um, so McLean probably bought some of the engine parts because McLean was setting up this with his own, own, own money. It was a small group of philanthropists who were setting this up with their own money. So they hadn't really got a lot of cash. So they did everything on the cheap where they could. So they, they, they obtained you know, the parts for these engines on the cheap, on, on special terms. Yeah. They built the waterworks. Then they had to build a further 11-mile pipeline Fortunately for the pipeline, because McLean owned the railway, he was able to lay the pipeline along his own railway for free. <laughs> you see, or well, you know, for the, for the cost of the pipeline, but he didn't have yeah. to purchase land off people. No, because he'd already got it. Uh, he'd already got it. And then they built another reservoir at Motend in Warsaw, which they, the, the you know, all the water ended up in the Motend Reservoir. That water then was at quite a high spot in Warsaw, so it could then be distributed under gravity. Tall uh, houses, you see. Makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. I was wondering how they'd get it, get the yeah. the water pipe from here, which is quite a low level, yeah. straight up Shire Oak, which is higher. That's right, yeah. Uh, massive hill incline. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then straight down into Warsaw, which then it goes, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So so, so basically, they, they follow the railway. Now, what happens with the railway is, um, I'll say, you've, you've got about 360 height going to, to, to overcome. So if you follow the railway from here to Brown Hills, um, it, it's on uphill gradients. And Brownells is the summit, actually. So Brownells has got a summit of about 400 feet. Right. There's a slight downhill run then to Warsaw. Now, they had to build um, a, a thing called a surge stack at Brownells, which is like a big tower, because what you didn't want is the water being siphoned as such. It needed to be pumped, you know, so they built this surge stack at Brownells. But then the water ran downhill the, the last half a mile or so, you know, two miles or so into, into, into Warsaw. So that's the basic sort of infrastructure. Um, the scheme was just incredibly successful, you know, and um, within 20 years, the, um, the black country was asking, can we have more water, please? Can we double the capacity? So, so they're pumping about 2 million gallons a day across the black country, and it wasn't enough. And bear in mind, this water was just straight out of the lake untreated. But of course, it was far better than what they'd got. So the, um, there was a call for more water. So they needed a way to double the capacity of the waterworks, but without doubling the, the infrastructure of the waterworks. So if you think about it, you've, you had three beam engines. Those beam engines needed a set of boilers and a, and a cobble store to, to, to operate. They needed a way to sort of double the capacity, but without building another set of boilers and another cobble store and, and all that. You see. So, so what they did is they engaged the services of a, a Cordish engineer called William Vandry. 
Now the Cornish were sort of really good at pumping vast quantities of water because of all the Cornish tin mines. Mm. So most of these tin mines are several thousand feet deep. They, they, they leak towards like anything, and so they have to move vast quantities. And so scattered all over Cornwall, as you see the remains of these pumping engine houses. That's it, yeah. And they were, they were huge. These kind of iconic shape, they're aren't they? Iconic for Cornwall, that's right, you see, that's right. And they were all for pumping water out of tin mines, you see. So this chap called William Vindry came up and says, well, let's get a Cornish pumping engine because although the Cornish pumping engine is older technologically, it is incredibly efficient. It's far more efficient than the James Watt engines. And we don't need to build all these extra boilers. We can just upgrade the existing boilers. Right. So in 1873, the engine house, as you now see, it was added. <laughs> um, a, a company in Tipton called Germany and George Davison Co. built this Cornish beam engine. It was an absolute monster. It was probably the fourth largest beam engine ever built on the planet. And a beam engine is, 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 is a kind of simple massive kind of arm that pumps up and down and as it as it as it as it moves it pulls the water and pushes the water yeah you're absolutely, absolutely yeah. correct you're spot on so it's a gigantic village pump almost uh, except this village pump can pull up a ton of water in one go good grief and it will and it will pull up a ton of water from 80 feet deep up to the surface in about 1.7 seconds and then it will then push that water away 400 feet higher and over to the Black Country, and it can do that in literally 1.7 seconds, and it does that six times a minute, Good grief. 24 hours a day, and the engine would run non-stop for months on end. So they increased the size, William Vindry, he built this Cornish beam engine, it's an absolute monster, you know. Uh, it was built locally, it was brought here on horse and carts, and, and as the building was built, the engine was fed into the building, so the engine itself is actually part you can't remove it, it's built into the building. And then when this thing was commissioned, it, this one single engine was doing more work than the other three. And it carried on operating right up until 1927. Great. Um, you can see signs where it has had certain repairs and work done on it. It needed a crew of 21 people to operate it. So it, it operated in three shifts of seven people. 24 you know so there's three three shifts of seven i suppose somebody had to keep an eye on pressure gauges somebody who kept an eye on yeah. the stoke and the yeah. fire and yeah yeah steam pressure and that's right it's it's almost like driving a car it's it's got it's, it has to have a driver and although it was pretty automated you always had to have somebody on site because what the waterworks was doing is it, it wanted to pump as much water out the well as it could possibly pump but it couldn't allow the engine to run dry because you'd have a sort of major disaster if the engine run dry, you see. Right. So, so you watch the water gauge and you pumped as much as you could. And then as the water sort of dropped, then you slowed the pumping down a bit. And if you had some bad weather where the water, you know, the Lemonsy Brook, you know, we got additional water, you could then pump that a little bit harder. So they, they, they extract as much as they possibly could. So it was quite dynamic in terms of yeah. how, you know, how much they pumped at any one point. That's right, it was. They were constantly just tweaking it. I mean, the engine itself has got, it's got its own built-in timers. So you can set it running to a certain speed, and then you can sort of tweak it up by just turning two little tiny knobs. You know, I mean, if you think about this, there's probably about 60 to 80 tonnes of moving mass. But then you can operate it by these little two little knobs, you know, <laughs> you know like, like tuning a radio. <laughs> it's, 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 it's incredible engineering. It's incredible it? engineering, you know, that's right. And, and, that, and I think that was the sort of fascination with it.
So obviously that that carried on until about the nineteen twenties, and then is this when kind of South Stuff's Water as an organisation kicks in, comes um, into gear? Well, originally South Stuff's Water actually started in nineteen fifty four with the this first waterworks. So that was the birth of South Stuff Water. Oh wow! Um, but what happened is is Again, you couldn't meet demand. There was this continual growth, you know, clean water. What cholera disappeared in Britain in 20 years, you know, and, and the only cases of cholera we get even today are usually from somebody travelling abroad. Right. And bearing in mind, you know, that cholera is still the sixth biggest killer in the world. You know, it, it, it just happens to be a killer of undeveloped countries. You know, we have not got a water infrastructure, but certainly you probably get about... Um, 1.4 million cases of cholera a year still. And out of that, probably well over 100,000, 140,000 people die every year. It's quite often young children as well. Young children and vulnerable. Um, so it is a significant disease that actually disappeared from Britain around about 20 years after we installed the waterworks. So as you can imagine, you know, the demand for more and more water was never stopping. So once Sandfields were built, then they added the Cornish engine, then they started to build a programme of more and more waterworks. Um, uh, and so, you know, there was another waterworks at Pipe Pill, you know, and Maple Hayes and, and, and you know, Cannock Chase, you know, there was, so they started developing bigger and more water so supplies. More and more of a network of... And a network started to evolve, that's right. Now, by the time we got to 1927, um, the Board of Health was to start, start to say, now we've eliminated, you know, the more of the deadly diseases like cholera, let's see if we can just get a cleaner and cleaner water supply. So they insisted that the, the water itself was cleaned up a little bit, you know, um, because, the, you know, there are sorts of other sorts of bacteria and sorts of nasties that can, you know, like blue green algae and stuff like that can get in water. So, so the, you know, the Board of Health wanted much cleaner water supplies. So at Sandfields, they built a water filter house. Right. So initially, you got the water straight out of the lake as it was. And actually, I have actually tried it, but I have filtered it. Yeah, I, so I it's, feel, feel it, seems, it seems quite unimaginable now that you just take water straight out of a lake and drink yeah, it. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. So I, I used a proper biological filter, you know, but it's, certainly it's a nice soft water. It's, it's Because most of your Sassadass water actually is pretty hard. You it know, is, yeah. The stuff yeah. coming out of, out of Litchford waterworks was actually quite nice, you see, because um, it's... it's Predominantly, or part of it is surface water, you see. There is a lot of percolation water in there. The Board of Health obviously wanted cleaner and cleaner water supplies. The basic operation of Sandfields, it got water, got water to people straight out of the lake. But of course, there were the potential for other underlying problems with water, with stuff like blue green algae. So they started to build a filter station at the site. So this filter house was built in about 1927. And I can remember it quite well because it was an Art Deco building. Oh, wow. it, and it was it was super. It was like really spice age, because there was all this sort of um, which you'd now see as antiquated machine, clocks and dials and gauges in there. And what the building did was it had a row of sand filters which were about eight feet deep. So the water from the lake was pumped to the waterworks. It was then pumped into the filter building, and it was mixed with a mixture of alum and sawdust. And what that did is it started to attract any heavy metals and things like that out of the water first. Kind of pollutants. So them. any pollutants, that's right. It, it started to draw those out of the water. Then the water slowly ran through eight foot of sand. So by the time it got to the bottom of the sand, it was absolutely crystal clear. 
So when it went in the top, it looked disgusting. It really did, you know. It was brown, it was gooey, and you got all these bits of wood, you know, arm floating around in it, and dead dogs and things. <laughs> but and by the top, it came out the bottom, and these were these glass panels where you could see it, and you could see this beautifully clean water coming yeah. out the bottom, absolutely crystal clear. They gave us a little shot of chlorine uh, just to kill any residual bacteria, and then and then they pumped it back up to Warsaw Reservoir. Um, now, the, the problem with the filter house meant was that South Glass Water needed an adjustable flow of water being pumped from the likes and then water that was actually being pumped away. It, it didn't balance. So with the beam engine, it could only pump out what it could pull in. Yeah, so turn water in, turn water out. Turn, turn water in, turn water out. Now, that didn't work with the filter house, you see. So they wanted to pump as much water as they could. But the filters only worked at one speed, you see. So that to try and vary the, the input and the output. So our beam engine couldn't really do that. So what they did is they, they took out the first of the three beam engines, the Boltman Watt beam engines, and replaced those with more modern steam engines. They were actually um, Sousa engines. They were, they were like a horizontal, what they call a uniflow engine. And they were really unusual because they had, um, they had an electric generator attached to them and then also a mechanical pump. And actually, the way they worked is the electrical generator generated power to, to operate a electric uh, well pump at the bottom of the wells, out to feet down. That pumped the water up and into the filter house. The water went through the filter house. It then flowed back towards the engines where the mechanical pumps then pumped the water up to Warsaw. So that gave that sort of differential in supply and demand, you see. So they could adjust the electric motors to pump more or to pump less. And then the filter house had a bit of a storage capacity, you see. It also had a lab, you know, and the lab was incredible, like, you know, <laughs> so it's, that was really, you know, there was a load of technicians working in the lab and they were all taking samples. And so it must have been a huge site, really. It was a huge day, site, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wish they hadn't knocked it down, you know, because again, as an addition to, the, to ours, that, that would have been ideal. It could have been converted to, you know, interesting workshops and things, you know, studios, workshops. It would have been a really sort of interesting site. It was, you know, I, I loved it idea because it was all space age and a bit of clever technology for the time. Yeah. Now, um, that all got knocked down on Friday, about nineteen ninety five. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, just redundant. Was it getting all kinds of shelved? Well, what happened was um, the environmental agency were getting concerned that this particular waterworks was just pulling all the water from under Litchfield. Right. Because if you imagine, you know, I mean, groundwater normally, the normal groundwater level is about between 10 and 30 feet, maybe less, you know. Um, but it's, at Litchfield, it's 80 feet because of the well, you say, because of the, the pumping wells. And the environmental agency were noticing that the Lemonsy Brook and the Trumpwell Brook were drying up in the summer. So they come to a temporary agreement, well, a, a, an agreement with Sastas Water, a voluntary agreement to say they'll stop pumping from the Litchfield site. Um, because, you know, there was just no, no water in the Lemonsy Brook, you see. And also, by then, Sastas Water had sort of developed this whole network of alternative sources, you know, and they were even pumping water out the River Seven at, at um, Ampton Road. Yeah. So they got all these other sources by then. So Sastas agreed, yeah, okay, let's, um, well, well, we'll go with this voluntary agreement. So they stopped pumping from Sandfields about 1995. Okay. Now, the site sort of sat there for a couple of years, and Sastraps Water used it as a little bit of a workshop because um, Sastraps, they used to service all their pumps. You know, they did all their own work. They trained their own apprentices. They were like a self-contained entity. 
but it didn't quite really work out. Um, there was a little group of excise staff's employers who were keeping the beam engine all polished up. Oh, nice. That was still in sight, obviously, and, and been kept in a state of preservation since 1927. In fact, what we suspect is they may have actually run the beam engine on a demonstration basis. Oh, okay. Up until about 1958. It was certainly kept on standby because of the war, you know, but, but they probably run it as the odd demo, but they didn't really use it for much for pumping, you see, but it was kept on standby probably up until about 1958. Um, but like I said, they used the place as a workshop. I think they just, you know, it was just another building. And then a developer wanted to sort of build on the adjacent land. So, um, and they needed access. Yeah. So they bought the sites from Stasas Water, the developer did. And there was a sort of agreement that they'd look after the heritage of the pumping station and build their houses and then go and then hand the pump station to a charitable organisation on completion. Uh, and it didn't happen. Right, uh, okay. It was, it was, you know, there was a couple of places. It wasn't really pursued by the council and, you know, the developer not being pursued sort of just left, left things as they were, you know. So that brings us to kind of recent history where it became a little bit of a kind of disused building unloved and mm. full of holes and pigeons and things that's right you know so so it sat there in a bit of a hiatus and by 2012 there was sort of some noticeable deterioration going on in the building people started breaking in people started pinching the lead off the roofs yeah and so a few local residents um gone to the council complaining this is a piece of heritage why aren't you sorting it you know and um, the council got in touch with um, a, a, a heritage group called the Clay Mills Victorian Engine Trust over in Burton-on-Trent. Ah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, massive. So, so they maintain that little sewage works. Um, it sounds disgusting, but it's not exactly really... No, it's a, it's a really nice place to visit, isn't it's, it? Yeah. It's, that's right, it's worth a visit. So, so they got in touch with the Clay Mills Trust and said, Look, would you be interested in doing something with Sandfields? And they basically said, well, we're really busy with our own work in all fairness but we probably know somebody who might be able to look at this because what they really wanted was like a historian with a business background <laughs> you know yes yeah. so, so you know i mean i sort of grew up in the construction industry started as an apprentice you know by the time i was 50 i was sort of running a significant chunk of the com you know the company you know 530 staff wow and then, of course, I got a background in history as well. So despite being chucked off the history course at school, <laughs> for failing to pay attention and for failing to add in any coursework, um, I'd always sort of liked history, and particularly industrial history. Okay. And I think that's just growing up in the industrial Birmingham, you know, you know, because we, we were the original smoky chimney town, you know. Um, yeah. So They try to make you forget that these days, though, don't they? Yeah, I don't, I don't know why, you know, I mean, that's right, I mean, I sort of talk about things like Shakespeare, and I'm thinking, hang on, we've been in an industrial town, we were, the black country, have really embraced it, yeah, and, and somehow, we, we you know, in, in Birmingham, we still want to, we want to talk about sort of Shakespeare and James Watt, you know, which, you know, don't mind James Watt, but, you know, but there were some sort of great Birmingham industrialists, there were some great Birmingham institutions that we really what's we focusing on, you know, but that, that that's obviously a personal opinion. Okay. So I was invited to have a shot of chat to the council, you know, and um, when I looked at the site, you know, it, it was looking pretty poor because I remember it in the 70s. There's photos of me as an 18-year-old taking photos in the, you know, 
taking photos of myself in there. And it, and it was pretty pristine condition, and it really was. It'd been kept in a lovely state. That must have been heartbreaking, really, to see the state. Yeah, well, it, it was looking really sort of shabby and untidy. It weren't, you know. And so that was in 2012. Now, the problem is, is sort of knowing what to do with it, you know. And I think that was the problem, that everyone didn't know what to do. Anyway, I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to let this one go because as far as I'm concerned, this building tells far too an important story of our industrial past. And, you know, the, the fact is this was built for a cholera epidemic, you know, and the fact is that hundreds of people from Mitchell worked at the waterworks. So you've got all these sort of life stories, you know, that associated with this building. Um, so I started a campaign and I set up, first of all, just a little constituted group. We had our first meeting in Darwin Hall in about 2013. And we have slowly sort of grown and campaigned until by 2017, Pursuman gave us a license to enter the building. But by then, I mean, they'd switched the power off in about 2013. Great. And by then, of course, once you pull the plug and once you don't occupy a building, yeah. then they start to deteriorate. And by 2017, it was absolutely shocking. And that was a shock then when I saw it. You know, it was trashed. It was quite sort of heartbreaking. You know, that the fact is you've got all this handmade steel, you know, and it was just all red rusty, it was all rotting away. Uh, it was full of pigeon droppings, you know, the people have been in and scattered all, all these archive documents, some of them are dated back over 100 years, and they're just all scattered all over the floor. So it was quite heartbreaking, that was, that was 2017. The then director of the um, developer, you know, sort of issued a formal apology. Right. And he gave us a couple of grand. And we better start sort of tidying it up. Um, now the aim was, like you know, that we wanted to pursue the Section One Hundred Six Agreement, which was they should set up an adequately funded trust and then donate the building to it. And eventually, they've, they've offered now to give us the building for free. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, and also put a lump sum in the dowry. So now we're at this stage where the building has probably got because it's on the list list of, with England, historic England now. And he's probably got about four and a half hundred thousand pounds worth of outstanding repairs to do. Um, however, the amount of money that developers put up for was well short of putting that right. But sometimes you've got to stop kicking the can down the road, haven't you? Yeah. So what we says is, look, we'll, 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 we'll take the lump sum and we'll just invest that so we're paying our running costs. And that will pay our running costs for the next 30 years or forever, potentially, if we... If you invest it correctly, and, yeah. You know, and we've got like a proper investment fund manager on board to do that, you know. So so I think that will that almost fulfills the adequate perpetuity, you know, the yeah, adequate that, fund that, interest that, that, in perpetuity. And with the repairs, you know, I mean there was estimates to refurbish the building, which come out at about two point eight million, right? Now I think is two point eight million with five hundred and ninety thousand pounds worth of professional fees. And, you know, I work in the construction industry. I think we can do it cheaper than this. So what we've decided to do is we'll get the community to do the repairs. Excellent. So rather than sort of just engaging a load of contractors who will sort of shut the building down, overtake the building, do it all look nice and lovely for £2.8 million, let's get the community to do it. Because what that does, that just offers people opportunity to get involved. 
And so we got lots of people, we got doctors who tidied all the archive up, you know, so the retired G police so picked every single document up and she laid them all out, you know. Fantastic. Um, we got people sort of chiseling plinths off, we got people doing painting, we got people doing rewiring. And so people are learning all these new skills. And so what you actually get then is you, you get this greater degree of community engagement. You know, that it becomes then part of the estate and not just a sort of object where you sort of pay to use. It becomes part of part of the estate. Yeah, itself. it becomes part of local culture as well. That's right. Yeah, people have more of a vested interest in it. They're more likely to Absolutely. shout about yeah, it and, yeah, yeah. and get yeah. other people engaged in yeah, it and bring new right, people yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, there's, 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 there's also a personal story in her, you know, from, from me. I mean, I left school with no qualifications. I told you I was kicked off the history course. Where I actually got an education from was the construction industry. Okay. So I was one of the original apprentices, you know, you served a four-year apprenticeship, got to go to night school, you know, you did a lot of tea making, the, the pay was dreadfully poor. But I always knew at the time, you know, right back in you know the early 70s, that if I did this apprenticeship, I'll never ever be able to work, I'll always be financially independent or such, you know. So I served an apprenticeship and then you start to learn on the job, you know, so it's, it's really sort of vocational. So what I'm doing actually is we're in contact with Dudley and Warsaw Colleges. So we're going to have apprentices who are doing their apprenticeships working on our site as well. Ah, so so, awesome. so we've, we've met these youngsters. You so know. things go full circle, really. So things have come full circle. Yeah, giving people opportunity and learning Absolutely. and upskilling. Uh, and the beauty of having apprentices on site is, 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 is a number of things. Is first of all, um, what they do on site counts as a life site skill. What they do in the college doesn't, you see. So in the college, if they sort of put a fuse board up, put a switch up, put a bulb up, why sort of get it working, they get a tick in the box for their technical knowledge, but it doesn't count as a life skill. And I remember many years ago, I was interviewing a couple of girls who had done work experience, and they'd done work experience for a whole year, and they'd done everything society had asked them to do. They'd gone every day, they'd done all the exercises in the college, but I couldn't give them a job because they'd got no site experience. Hmm. Now, I did speak to the employer who was a local authority and I said, look, can we just create two apprenticeships for these? And, oh, I don't know now, like, you know, and, you know, you know and I thought it was such a shame. So I've never forgotten that because, you know, these two girls have just done everything I've been asked of them and they're still being let down. Right. You know. It's terrible, really. Um, and that's quite sad, really, you know, because it, cause it, could they have got through that? They could have enjoyed what I've enjoyed, which is lifelong employment, you know. Although yeah. I've retired at 50, but, you know, up until then. You know, financially independent, you see. So, we've got the apprentices involved because, first of all, what they do on that site it cancels life skill. What they do on that site will stay there forever and they will be showing their grandchildren what they've done. But also, they've got this opportunity to work with some of these older guys there. So, they're forming these intergenerational relationships. And you then, you then sort of breaking down that barrier between old, old people and young people. Yeah, and also and passing down skills together. knowledge and things as well. The older people are passing down their skills knowledge, you know. And I used to love this, you know, because you get these sort of old guys, you know, and there's oh, right, so not, you know, there's two ways to do this, there's a right way, I'm not sure you know it. <laughs> but it's great because that, you know, that those are your tacit skills. Those are the bits that you can't learn out of a textbook, you know, that you're working with somebody who's done this a few times before. So that will provide opportunities for the apprenticeships. And, it, and what it does... It will get this project finished for less than the professional fees of what it would have cost had it been exactly put out to a, to a contractor under a heritage lottery bid. 
Now, I mean, we, we do need some heritage luxury money because we'd like to get some activity planners in place. We'd like to get a professional fundraiser in place. There will be some professional um, decisions to make. You know, we've had to bring in a structural engineer uh, to, because of the wells, you see. So, so again, you know, we do need... It's all cost, isn't it? it? It's all cost, you see, that's right. And we're sort of... And the other thing is, you know, is we, we treat our volunteers remarkably well. You know, we give them free tea and coffee, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, we, we put them on training courses, health and safety. We're just about to do a first aid course with them or a first aid refresher course. You know, so so we it's an opportunity for everybody to sort of learn something new. And I think if you if you look at, for instance, the way the pandemic's gone, you know, people have now been locked and isolated for over two years. And I think we've got now a lot of problems with social isolation. Yeah. So what this building will do, it will give people an opportunity to sort of get out, to interact, to interact with others, to interact with us, you know, and just generally become more mobile. And certainly that's what happens is, you know, that when we go around, we put little events on there, people come along and for a couple of quid, you know, they can listen to me speaking or, and they can boom me on stage if they want. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, I'll pay you later. <laughs> they're, they're, they're out there interacting with each other. They've been mobile. Yeah. They've been social. And all this is for a couple of quid, you know. It's it's. I think it's a really good, you know. Yeah, it's a great way of getting in community engagement as well. And people that perhaps don't want to come in and volunteer and, yeah. and learn the skills, but want yeah. to meet new people. That's right. Yeah, can come across. Yeah. So so what's what does the future hold then? Okay, so we we're sort of in the final stages now of signing off the field. Um, because it's a, a redundant waterworks, there's all sorts of complicated things going on in the deeds, and we've got to sort of diligently go through those just to make sure that we aren't buying ourselves, um, you know, a, a bombshell as such. Yeah. Um, because what you've got to remember is this, this is a huge building that sits on the top of four 80 feet deep well, five, five 80 feet deep wells, you know, so there's all the sort of structural integrity we've got to look at. Also, there's certain acts of parliaments that govern the waterworks and Sestas Water still have an integral interest in the building. So, okay. so we've got to sort of sort of tidy all that up, you know, but we are working our way through it. Um, once we take ownership, um, what we're looking at doing is that in the 1873 building, we keep that as a unique a space as possible, that we make the least possible change. Yeah. Now, I've forbidden any new paint. Good. You know, yeah. We're just going to keep it. So anything that's been added, like there's some handrails, that's put in. We paint those in grey, like a bluey grey colour, to denote they were never part of the original structure. Yeah. But we're doing a minimal change, so it's basically cleaning it, polishing it, putting some oil on it, and, and retain, you know, retaining that sort of 1873 space. So retaining its integrity, really. So you maintain its integrity. And what we says to the apprentices, you know, because we're getting the electrical apprentices, they've got to rewire it. And what we says to them is, you've got to light it all up, but you can't see any other lights. So we want some dramatic lighting in there. Yeah, you know, yeah. What's amazing what you can do with LED strip lighting and, and LED absolute, spotlights yeah. these days. You can hide yeah. in really creative places, yeah. can't you? And that's right. And what, what that then does is the apprentices then become part of the design process as well. So they can sort of what you know that up. The 1960s building is sort of interesting because it's, it's like a natural theatre. Yeah. You know, it's a natural theatre with the gallery, stairs down. So what we've done is remove the old electric motor you know for the engines and they were just, huge weren't they they were huge and we've just got like, this beautiful vanilla space the paint is pearling and that's staying like that you know right. so we're leaving the pearling paint on and um and we're going to use it for whatever people want to use it for so so far we've managed to have um 
Uh, a third group have used it. They put on a play over five evenings, and that was reasonably well attended. It, I went to the play. It was really good. It was very dramatic. <laughs> Why they set it up, you know, it was really dramatic. Awesome. They're booking it, and they're starting to load again today for yeah. their next play, where that where, where they want the building for three weeks. That's amazing. So there's another sort of plays going on over the next couple of weeks. There's also first aid training about to happen in there. Um, we've got a group of ramblers calling in today who are going to have a tour, and there was a group of people who had a tour yesterday. Um, anybody from the community, if they want to use it, they can, because, again, you've got this space. And what we basically try to do is we try to operate on a donation basis, because by operating on a donation basis, it removes the money as a barrier to anybody who wants to access it. Yeah. You know, no, and I think that's important, you see, because we could charge an annual subscription, could charge a fee, but what you tend to find is that when you start to charge fixed fees, you only attract a certain element of, of, of the population. And what we're looking for is that there's, there's no barriers whatsoever. So we do everything by donation, you know. And some people come along and all fairness and say, oh, yes, I'll donate something, don't. <laughs> and other people are really incredibly generous, and that just works. Good. Um, we're going to install a level access um, disabled from the loo on the ground floor in the 1960s building. Yeah, because that's a building that's got two levels, doesn't it? That's got two levels, yeah. So we think, you know, if we can get some early wins, we think we can we'll put a level access disabled loo and a little coffee bar, and we're going to leave all the switchboard in place and put a few lots so the kids can play with that. Because that's a 1960s, 1960s kind of electric switchboard, yeah. very industrial looking. Yeah, and we want to retain that because that is part of the water story. Because if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's evidence, you know, that clean water probably added the average of 20 years to the average life expectancy. And yet the history of the modern water industry is hardly told, you know, people don't think about it, you know, yeah. they turn the tap on. And but then they get water and that's and it. They, and they yeah. get and they don't realise it's extended your life expectancy by twenty years. I mean you can you can buy a pot of ice cream for about three hundred quid, which might make you look five years younger, but this actually works, <laughs> you know, the glass of water, the clean water works. Um so we want to retain all those as many of those nineteen sixties features as we can because like that again is part of the story. Um we we think we can probably get a disabled lifting to go onto the bottom of the nineteen sixties building. We would like to then get some sort of disabled facilities at least into the 1870 building, you know, but that's a little bit more technically challenging because as an industrial building, you know, they, they were just never built, particularly no. a Victorian industrial building, which was never built for disabled people, you see. So we need to sort of find a way, if we can, a practical way to rectify that. Okay. Um, and that's what we'll be aiming for, you know. That's superb. And are you, uh, are you re do you need any support with, with getting that or...? We'd always, yes, I mean, the, the thing is, you know, I mean, we operate as a, as a sort of committee and we always think that, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a bad idea. So we always sort of welcome people to come in and say, what would you like to do? What do you think we ought to do? Again, to sort of get this community engagement, you know, let, let's have people in it. And in fact, I mean, I know sort of people say, well, I've got a vision of it, but that actually vision is, is part of all the conversations I've had with hundreds of people over the period of nine years, um, you know, to to sort of actually, you know, to get this thing as a project done. So how can people get in touch with you or come and see it? Okay, so first of all, it's always best to get in touch. We've got a website, which is litchfieldwaterworkstrust.com. We've also got a Facebook page, Litchfield Waterworks Trust, on Facebook. 
And we've got a Facebook group called Sunfield's Pump Installation. Amazing. Um, we're on Twitter and we're on Instagram. Um, give us a call and we'll arrange, you know, we can, we'll arrange your visits. I mean, COVID's obviously made life quite difficult at the moment. But it, at the other hand, we don't want to deny accessibility to anybody. So if you just get in touch and you can contact us through the website, you know, yeah, um, and we'll, we'll work something out to, to, to let people have a visit. That's amazing. And then obviously if they've got any ideas and any events that they'd like, they can also get in touch to organise that. And Absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, you've, that 1960s building is, is, is a really sort of super space. Um, the team are actually working on a creative museum status. At oh, the nice. moment, you know, so it will actually become a community museum. So what does that involve? Well, we've got to sort of meet certain criteria. Okay. And I've sort of pushed the team you know, out in that direction, basically says, look, just, just get it sorted how you think is right. So what we've got to do is we've got to maybe expand our collection of objects a little bit. Now, we're lucky because we've obviously got the beam engine and yeah. a lot of other artefacts still in the building. A lot of them got nicked in this sort of hiatus, but there's still a few artefacts in there. But Sastas Water have also offered to give us their complete archive as well. Oh, crap. So we're looking at housing that. Then eventually when funds allow, because it's got to be kept safe, because this archive dates back to 1853. Yeah. And, it, and it's amazing because it's got all the working drawings, all the tender documents, all the employers' records. And actually one of the most common employee inquiries we get is, my granddad worked at the Waterworks. Do you know what he did? And we can tell him precisely what he did, how much he was paid, when he was employed from, when he was employed to. We've got stories of one guy who worked at Sunfields, and then when the First World War broke out, he went back to the Merchant Navy. But they kept his job open for him and paid him a retainer. And when he came back at the end of the war, I've seen his letter which says reports to Sandsville's pumping station at nine o'clock on Monday morning. Good grief. You know, a guy called Addy Pagmore that was, yeah. And, and he did, you know, so he went off and fought in the war and came back. And Sastos did that. They were quite a good employer. They were incredibly regimented, but they, they seemed to treat people okay, you know. They seemed to look after people. Fantastic. You know. And so you, you know, so you, so you got this historic record, you know, which I think will be part of it. And as I say, you know, the nineteen sixties building, that's going to be a sort of smashing event space, you know, theatre, cinema, um, community hub, you know, repair workshop. We're doing all that sort of stuff, you know, and uh, yeah, amazing. Well, it sounds, it's, uh, it sounds like you've kind of really saved the building from from potential destruction and demolition. And also giving it a new life and a new purpose. I think I'd like to think so, because I think that the, the one sort of powerful thing about this building is um, tens of thousands of people died of cholera in the black country. And most of those people were buried in unmarked graves, you know, because that's all they've got. And so consequently, you know, the, those people died quite a wretched death and, the, and they've got no voice. You know, the, they've almost been sort of swept away under the carpet. I think by preserving this building, it will enable us to tell their story and to give those, those, those all those cholera victims a voice back. Okay. You know, and tell a remarkable story about the black country itself. Fantastic. the end of the interview and I would really like to say thank you very much for David Moore for coming on and being my first ever guest stroke interviewee on the Hogcast. 
Uh, it was a real amazing experience and I thoroughly enjoyed it, so thank you. If you have an organisation that you would like to talk about or shout about on the podcast, then please do not hesitate to get in touch. I'd love to set up an interview. The next episode of the podcast has been planned and we're going to go back to films. And hopefully I'll have two guests with me and we'll be talking about a film that one of them has never seen in a feature that we're going to call Green Screen. Sounds like it's going to be a load of fun and I hope to see you there. In the meantime, stay safe everybody. Hedgehog out. <laughs>